Good morning. My name is Anush John. I am part of the teaching team and we are in the middle of a series. Then God sat down and this sermon will contribute to the point at which God sat down. Even though humans like to think of themselves in superlative terms, most cultures are aware that there is somebody or something else out there that is bigger than ourselves. So from the beginning, humans have tried to interact with the superior being or the superior force. On one side is this infinite, holy, awesome God, and on the other side are finite, weak, sinful humans. And somehow we have to bridge the gap. And the person that bridges that gap is what is called as a priest. And as he stands between God and man, trying to represent humanity, to God. Many ancient and present cultures and worldviews have priests. This morning in a sermon entitled The Vestigial Veil, we're going to look at the role of the priest in the Judeo-Christian worldview. Our text for this morning is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. And if you have your Bibles, please turn to Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16. And let me read it for us. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I've divided this sermon into three parts. In the first part, we will look at the high priest and the role of the high priest. In the second part, we will look at Jesus, who is the great high priest. And in the third part, where I hope to spend most of our time, we will look at a priest. First, let's look at the high priest. The God of the Bible had very specific requirements for who could be a high priest. And in the next chapter, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, that I'm not going to read now, are those very specific requirements that God had. And since God was the superior being, he got to make the rules of who would interact with him. And so that person in the Old Testament had to be from the tribe of Levi. And there were 13 tribes in Israel. It had to be from the tribe of Levi. And it had to be from the household of Aaron. And so Aaron was the first high priest and then his sons were the high priests. And the high priest would offer atonement for the people and for himself. Every time he came into the presence of God, he would offer atonement for himself and also for the people that he was representing. There were two key functions of the priest, and I'm not going to go into detail because we will be picking it up as we go along. The first function, key function of the priest was reconciliation. And this was done through sacrifices. So in the Old Testament, there were these sacrifices that people would do or the priests would do to reconcile themselves to God. And the purpose of reconciliation was holiness because God was holy and people were not. And so every time the high priest came into the presence of God, they had to offer sacrifices to reconcile to God. The second key function of the priest was mediation. And this was done through intercession. 
In fact, the root of the Hebrew word for priest, Kohen, means one who stands up for another and mediates in his cause. One who stands up for another and mediates in his cause. At the time of Jesus, there were 24 teams of priests. Just like we have a worship team, there was a team of priests and each person did a different function. There were 24 teams of priests. 12 teams were in Jerusalem. Six teams were in Jericho. And six other teams of priests were scattered all across Israel. So when one team was on duty, they were expected to come for all the services that weekend and be available during the week. And obviously they kept rotating. Now, if you wanted to be a priest, you couldn't just be a priest. They would do some inquiries to find out if you're capable to be a priest. So they would do two main inquiries. The first inquiry had to do with your ancestry. Did you come from a family of priests? Was your father a priest? Was your grandfather a priest? Did you come from a family of priests? And if you are not, they would clothe you in black clothes and then you could only do menial jobs in the temple. That was pretty intense, I thought. But the second inquiry that they would do is to find out if you had any physical defect. And they had a list of 140 physical defects. And if you had anything on that list, you were permanently disqualified. They had another list of 22 physical defects. And if you had anything on that list, you were temporarily disqualified. So let me give you three examples of these criteria that they had that would disqualify a person who wanted to be a priest. Say, for example, you had cataracts. Well, those days they didn't do cataract surgery, so you were automatically disqualified from being a priest. Or if you had disproportionate limbs, if one arm of yours was slightly longer than the other arm, I guess they measured each person's arm and legs. But if your limbs were disproportionate, then you were disqualified from being a priest. A third criteria was if the bridge of your nose was too low. If the bridge of your nose was too low. So if, you're, if the bridge of your nose, what is called the dorsum of the nose, is too low, and the way that they checked it was they would take ointment, and if they could put ointment on your eyes and go from one eye to the next eye in a straight line, disqualify. What they wanted to do was go across one eye, go over the bridge of the nose, and go across the other eye. If the bridge of your nose was too low, sorry buddy, I know you come from a priestly family, your father was a priest, your grandfather was a priest, but the bridge of your nose is too low, you are disqualified. Secondly, let's look at Jesus, the great high priest. Let me read for us verse 14 and 15 again. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Why is Jesus the great high priest? In fact, according to Judaism, Jesus was not even a priest because he didn't come from the priestly family of Levi and Aaron. He came from the tribe of Judah. So even under Jewish law, Jesus was not a priest. And that's why he never went into the temple in Jerusalem and offered any sacrifices. 
He was not qualified, according to Jewish law, to be a priest. Why then does the writer of Hebrews call him the great high priest? There are many reasons, but this morning I want to point to you two reasons based on the dual nature of Jesus Christ. The first one is his divine nature and position. His divinity, that the fact that he is fully God, is one of the reasons why he is the great high priest. Let me ask you a question. What is Jesus doing right now? He died, he rose again, he went to heaven. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, it reads, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. What is Jesus doing? He is mediating every time we sin. He is interceding for us before the Father every time we sin. You see, he's doing the second of the functions that a high priest should do. The first was reconciliation. The second was intercession. Jesus is doing the intercessory function before the Father. And this is a full-time job because we are all sinning at different points of our lives. And every time we sin, Jesus is interceding for us. I had a very difficult sleep last night and somewhere in the middle of my sleep, I saw a dream. And in my dream, I had gone to heaven and I was in this big field where there were numerous clocks all over the place. But the only problem was each of these clocks had only one hand. And I could see that each clock had one hand. It was all moving at different rates. So I went up to an angel. Obviously, there's an angel because we are in heaven. I went up to an angel and I asked the angel, what are all these clocks that are just all over this field? So the angel said, oh, it is, uh, this is a sinometer. This shows when a person sins on earth, the hand of this sinometer ticks one time. And the more you sin, the more it keeps ticking. And so I was curious. And so I picked up the sinometer that is right next to me. And that happened to be Peter's sinometer. And that had a lot of ticks at one time. Then it stopped for a little bit. Then there were more ticks. And then it stopped. And then there were more ticks. And then I picked up the next one. That was Paul's sinometer. That had a lot of ticks at the beginning. And then it completely died off at the end. And then I picked up St. Augustine's uh, sinometer. That had similarly a lot of clicks at the beginning. Then it kind of uh, died off at the end. And then I wanted to come to some contemporary people. So I walked across and picked up another one. That was Billy Graham's sinometer. Hardly any clicks. A few ticks here and there. And then I walked around and I picked up my wife's sinometer. Some of you are thinking, man, what is he going to say? Is he going to sleep on the couch tonight? Um, but when I picked up my wife's sinometer, um, don't worry, she's not in the service. I can say what I want. Um, I saw no ticks at all. And every now and then there would be a tick. And then I realized those were the times that she was asking me to do some yard work. Those were the times it was ticking. Otherwise, there was hardly any ticks. And then I moved and I found my own. And as I looked at my own sinometer, there was just continuous ticking going on. I was ashamed of myself. I covered my face with my hands and I didn't want to look up at the angel. I was ashamed of the continuous ticking on the sinometer. And then I thought, hmm, let me just check if there's somebody else. And I looked around for Pastor Joey's uh, sinometer and it wasn't there. And I looked around for a while and then I asked the angel, you know, any idea you have whether, you know, where Pastor Joey's sinometer is? He's a friend of mine. I've known him for a few years. 
He said, oh, uh, his sinometer is with God. I said, wow, that's, that's crazy. I mean, I've, I've known him for a few years. I know he's a righteous guy. He's a hardworking guy. He's a passionate guy. He's a talented guy. He's an artistic guy. But I didn't think he was that holy to be right next to God. The angel said, oh, don't worry about it. God is using it as a fan. <laughs> Our sinometers continue to tick. And every time it ticks, Jesus is praying for us. He's interceding for us. The second reason why I think Jesus is the great high priest is his humanity and temptation. He was fully human. And because he was fully human, he faced temptation. C.S. Lewis said it best. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after only five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people in one sense know very little about badness. They have lived a very sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of an evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. And because he faced temptation fully, he understands us. And because he understands us, he is able to empathize with our weaknesses. The word empathize literally means to suffer with. Jesus suffers with us while we are resisting that evil impulse inside of us. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 and 18 read, For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. After the second service, I spoke to a person, and that person was a Marine that was now working among other new Marines who have PTSD. I guess somebody else could work among people that have PTSD, but nobody would understand a person with PTSD like a former Marine who struggled with those same issues. We talked about the high priest, we talked about Jesus, the great high priest, and thirdly, let's talk about the priest. Since Jesus is the great high priest, fulfilling the functions of reconciliation and intercession. We did not talk about his function of reconciliation yet, but we will. What do we do? 
What can we do because Jesus is our great high priest? We can approach God with confidence. So in verse 16 it reads, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This concept of approaching God was completely unheard of. You just did not walk into the presence of God. It was like walking into the sun. You just didn't walk into the sun without being destroyed. In 2018, a probe from NASA made its voyage close to the sun. An article from sciencenews.org shows the picture of a sun taken by this probe from a distance of 27 million kilometers. 27 million kilometers and starts with these words, NASA's Parker Solar Probe has met the sun and lived to tell the tale. And when it says met the sun, it was 27 million kilometers away. You see, it could not get real close because the external surface temperature of the sun is 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And the internal temperature of the sun is 28 million degrees Fahrenheit. You just didn't approach the sun whenever you wanted. And for the God who created the sun, for whom the sun is like a grain of sand, you just didn't approach that God anytime you wanted. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 15 and 16 it reads, God the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. The Jewish tabernacle was divided into three parts. There was a courtyard where any Jewish person could come in. And then there was the holy place where the priests could come in. And then there was the most holy place where only the high priest could come in once a year. And the most holy place was separated from the holy place by a veil so that nobody could just access into the presence of God anytime they wanted. At the time of Jesus, there were two veils because in the Talmud it says that they could not decide whether the original veil was in the holy side or the most holy side. And so they had two veils, one on the holy side, one on the most holy side. And these two veils were separated from each other by a cubit, which is the distance from your, the tip of your middle finger to the bottom of your elbow. So between the two veils was a cubit of space. And each veil was made of 72 squares stitched together. And they were 30 feet by 60 feet. And the thickness of each veil was the thickness of the palm of your hand. The thickness of the veil. That's how thick each veil was. It was so heavy that the Talmud says it required 300 priests to move it. And into this room passed the veil. The high priest would enter once a year on the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur 
trembling and with sacrifices. Sacrifices, two kinds of sacrifices. One for himself, because otherwise he would be killed. And secondly, for the people that he was representing. And he would come trembling because essentially he was coming face to face with the sun. And you don't just approach the sun whenever you want. Since Jesus did no sin, when he was offering the work of reconciliation, he didn't have to offer a sacrifice for himself. But he carried the sacrifice for the world on himself when he died 2,000 years ago. And at the moment of his death, something incredible happened. At 3 p.m. on Good Friday, the team of priests, like usual, they came to work on Good Friday. And 3 p.m. is the time of the evening sacrifice. And the person that is supposed to do the sacrifice walks into the temple, into the courtyard, into the holy place, and now he is about to perform the sacrifice. And as he is about to do it, he feels the earth shake unto him, and he sees something incredible. The two veils start to tear. And so in Matthew chapter 27, verse 50 and 51, it reads, And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, the veils tore from top to bottom. God's own hand had torn the veil and forever opened the space where he himself had dwelt in mysterious gloom. And for so many years, that place was lit up only by the dim light of the high priest's lamp as he came trembling and with fear, with atonement for himself and for the people that he was representing. And ladies and gentlemen, for the first time in Jewish history, an ordinary priest looks past the vestigial veils from the holy place and he is able to look into the most holy place. But little does he know about the significance of that because you see as that priest was attempting to perform a temporary sacrifice for reconciliation just outside the city gates at the same time was the great high priest performing the permanent sacrifice that would provide permanent reconciliation and access to God. And in this context, the author of Hebrews says that we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence. You would think I was going to tell you that we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence. But I want to step back and ask you another question. This verse was written for those who were trembling as they came into the presence of God. Do we come trembling into the presence of God? When was the last time we came trembling into the presence of God? Do we come with entitlement and indifference? I suggest that we need to come trembling first to understand how powerful this phrase is to come with confidence in the presence of God. What if we don't have the holy awe and the trembling when we come into the presence of God? 
If we have any other attitude other than trembling when we come into the presence of God, it means we don't have the faintest idea who God is. Because if we know who God is, or even have a small idea of who God is, we would tremble in his presence. When we look at the account of encounters in the Bible, people were not just trembling in the presence of God. When they came face to face with God, they would lie prostrate on the ground in fear and amazement. They could not handle the presence of God. The more we learn about God, the more we spend time in His presence, the more we will need to be trembling and in holy awe of who God is and how small we are. Do yourself a favor and learn about God. Study the attributes of God. The Bible says the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the glory of God. God wants us to know him. He says from the least to the greatest they shall all know me. God's ultimate purpose for all of us is for us to know him and honor him. Yesterday I got an email inviting me to speak for 15 hours over the course of five days about the triune God, the nature and the attributes of God, early next year in the Republic of Georgia. And I am super thrilled because I get to once again study about God and be humbled and be in awe. It is for those people who are trembling in the presence of God that this verse is written, that we can come with boldness and confidence. It says, let us approach this throne of grace with confidence. And the phrase, let us approach, is a technical term used in the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, for the approach of a priest into the temple. Let me say that again. This phrase, let us approach, is used for a priest. So we thought, well, it was used for believers. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. Yes, it is used for believers, but it's also used for priests to approach the throne of grace with confidence. Revelation chapter 1 verse 6 reads, And Jesus has made us to be a kingdom and priests, to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. We are priests. You are a priest. We obviously don't need to perform the function of reconciliation because Jesus performed it completely and sat down. We don't need to do reconciliation work, but we need to do mediation, intercession. Yes, Jesus is interceding for us, but we also need to be interceding. Let me ask you a question. Who are you a priest for? Is there a non-believing person that you could be a priest for? South African alternative metal band, Seether, which is not a Christian band at all, in their song from the 2014 album, Isolate and Medicate, sings these words, and they sing the stanzas describing meaninglessness 
and a chorus that makes a very sobering accusation. Listen to these words. I'm a whisper lost upon wind. I'm the ember that'll burn you down. I'm the water that'll drown you. I'm a star that's just a black hole now. I'm a terrifying danger. I'm a fruit decaying on the ground. I'm a swallower of anger. I'm a tree that falls and makes no sound. I'm a fungus in the forest. I'm a lizard with a poison tongue. I'm a product of my anger. I'm the bullet in a loaded gun. Because if I stand up, I'll break my bones. And everybody loves to see a fall unfold. There's nobody praying for me. Ladies and gentlemen, is there the smallest chance that there is someone in your orbit whose name you know, whose face you've seen, and who does not know God, and you have not prayed for them. The least we could do is to pray for their salvation. Nobody can stop you from praying for somebody else. What if you are the only priest they have? And if you didn't pray, like Sida said, there's nobody praying for me. And when you pray for them, they may never know about it. But when you get to heaven, you'll know about it. You'll see people from 20 years ago that you have no contact with, that you've been praying for, and show up in heaven. Why do we not think about it? Why do we not think about praying for salvation? Is it possible that we are so concerned about our sinus infections that we have no time to think about somebody else's brain tumor? I'm going to give the opportunity for two groups of people to respond to the sermon. If there's anyone here who's never invited Jesus into your life, you can pray a prayer after me in a minute. And if it's a prayer that you mean, God will answer it. But the second group of people, if there's anybody here who is a believer and does not know God enough to tremble before him, the whole purpose of our existence is to know God and glorify him. Or if there's a believer here who is not fulfilling the responsibility of intercession, You can pray with me as well. There's anybody here who's never invited Jesus into your life? Jesus is the great high priest. He came, he lived a perfect life without sin as we read. He died an atoning sacrifice and he rose again on the third day. You can pray something like this. This is not a magical prayer. But if it's a prayer that comes from the bottom of your heart, God will answer it. You can pray something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. And I would never have been able to approach God. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to live without sin, to face the full onslaught of sin. Thank you for his death. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for new life. Thank you that Jesus is interceding for me right now. 
I ask Jesus to come into my life and make me complete. Heavenly Father, I pray for anybody here who is a believer. And we have been numb to the presence of God. We have been indifferent to the presence of God. I pray that you would help us to know you more to seek you more. And as we know you more, I pray that you would cause us to tremble as we are aware of who we are and who you are. In that context, thank you for reminding us that we can come boldly into your presence where people in the past could never have come. As we think about people in our past who have never known you, as you bring people to our minds, even right now, I pray that you would help us to be consistent and faithful in praying for them. We may never see the rewards of those prayers while we are on earth, Lord God, but help us to be faithful. Help us to be the priest that you have called us to be. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.